Welcome to Pullback. I'm Kyla Hewson, and I'm here with Kristen Pugh. Hello. Each episode, we challenge ourselves to try something new in ethical consumption, and then we tell you what we learned, fuck-ups and all. This episode, we are joined by a guest. We're here with Peter Harris, a postdoctoral research fellow for the Center for Agricultural Engineering. Oh, that's so fancy. He works on the uh, bioenergy and bioresource recovery team. They have projects which revolve around technology called anaerobic digestion. And he's told me that it's an extremely old but poorly utilized sort of technology, question mark. You want to tell me a little bit more about that, Pete? <laughs> Absolutely. Sounds like a fantastic introduction. Yes. I mean, you told me to say all that, I think, so. <laughs> Not to brag, but I did a very bad job of reading what you wrote for me. <laughs> <laughs> no, it sounds good. You said that, like, the anaerobic digestion, or was it just your work? I gave, I have, like, jot notes. It says roots in wastewater treatment. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can give you a, a bit of a brief history about it, actually. Yes, please. I don't. So I um, usually will do like a bunch of research when I have to host an episode, but you're an expert and we have great chemistry. So I did no research at all. <laughs> <laughs> should, should we, Kyla, though, should we introduce the topic of the episode? Like, um, are we talking about biogases in general or? Pete, um, tell us. Because I don't really know what anaerobic digestion is. <laughs> so. Yeah, I think it's better to talk about biogas in general. Um, it, it really sits at a crossroads in terms of uh, is it waste management, uh, it comes into recycling and sustainability, sanitation, energy production, and as well as agricultural productivity and food security as well. So it's hard to just put it into one pigeonhole. All right. I'm excited to dig into it. I know next to nothing about biogases, but um, I'm really excited to learn. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope I can provide an interesting uh, overview of it. I think so. So did you want to start by telling us what the history was that you were going to that you were offering earlier? Yeah, for sure. So I actually took this from Penn State University. Thanks, guys. <laughs> so it actually goes back uh, well beyond uh, the 1600s, which is my first entry here, because this is the same uh, process that happens in swamps. So if you've heard of swamp gas, uh, this is and swamps smell really bad. And this is because it's rotting organic material. And these uh, microbes, they live under the surface of that water in, in the black kind of muck that you'll pull up in a swamp. And uh, that's the same bacteria that we use to break down organics in our process. And the gases are carbon dioxide and methane. So what you can actually get is, is swamp fires that naturally occur. And this, uh, you know, is recorded as like will-o'-wisp kind of things, like uh, people seeing these specters off in, in, in the swamp, which is actually just fire. And when we start to talk about, I guess, the science of it, the, the human history of it, we go back to the 1600s and there's uh, Jan Baptida Van Helmont, and I'm going to get all of these names wrong, but <laughs> Jan determined that flammable gases could evolve from decaying matter. So this is the really first observation. And then we, we moved through to uh, 1776, so 170 years later, and that was Count Alessandro Volta uh, concluded a direct correlation between the amount of decaying matter and the amount of flammable gas produced. We then skipped forward to 1808, and Sir Humphrey Davy determined that methane was present in the gas produced 
from the anaerobic digestion of, of cattle manure. And interestingly enough, we then, a lot these days, we use cattle manure as the seed to start an anaerobic digestion process, commonly used in India, for example. We then moved through to 1859, uh, where was the first AD plan or anaerobic digestion plant uh, was built at a leper colony in uh, Bombay or, or what is now known as Mumbai in India. And then 1895, so our dates are getting closer together, uh, biogas was recovered from the sewage treatment facility uh, in Exeter in London, uh, in England, sorry, and used to fuel the street lamps of Exeter. And you may have seen where, where some people have been, say, standing over like a sewer grate and have dropped a cigarette and uh, there's been an explosion. This is uh, ignition of the methane content that's, that's being generated from that sewer material. So then moving through to the 1930s, there's a, uh, a guy who's particularly well-known in, in the field now, uh, goes, well, he doesn't go by the name. His name is Buswell, uh, his last name. And uh, he identified the, the anaerobic bacteria and the conditions to promote methane production. So since then, a lot of the finer details have really been teased out. Um, and so we get to sort of where we're at now where colleagues of mine have been working on things such as trace elements uh, that can influence the process. And my, myself, my PhD was on, on pre-treating materials to try and make them more accessible to the microbes. We have a lot of different reactor technologies. We're at the point where there are roughly 5 million digesters in India, 40 million digesters in China, and these are uh, small-scale family-sized digesters. When we talk about large scale, we're talking 10,000 in Germany, uh, several thousand in other European countries. Uh, so it's, it's really taking off in places, uh, places like Australia, we're a little bit behind, and uh, hopefully we're seeing a bit of a boom here. I have several questions. One, if you throw a cigarette down a sewer now, will you still get an explosion? I guess that kind of depends on where you are. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> That's a real bad public safe, uh, safety issue. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so my second question is then to sum up, basically what you do is you turn cow farts into energy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, almost, almost. Um, I guess cow farts and cow burps are still an issue and people are trying to like put scuba masks on cows. Oh, I saw that. That's so weird. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, rumen fermentation. Um, that's producing that. And th there is a lot of work that's being done on that. Some people are introducing like seaweed into the diets for cattle to reduce the amount of methane they're producing. And apparently that's having a huge effect. Our process essentially mimics the stomach of a cow. And instead of it being farted off, we actually uh, are able to collect it, to collect that methane. The process, um, as I mentioned uh, to you before, it does have some roots in waste treatment and just about any uh, wastewater treatment plant, municipal wastewater treatment plant that you go to uh, will have an anaerobic digestion process involved to break down the organics that are remaining in human waste uh, before they can 
process that further, uh, basically clean up the water and get rid of the solids. Digesters have uh, really evolved from cesspits and septic tanks uh, to be the, the digesters that we know today. So what do they, like, what are they used for? Are they still powering street lamps or? <laughs> yeah, we've kind of moved away from uh, street lamps, but uh, they could be. We've done some work uh, with abattoirs trying to clean up the uh, material that these, that's coming out the back end of, well, that sounds bad, <laughs> that abattoirs are producing. And um, the microbes will, will break that down they'll produce the, the methane and then they can run that through uh, a power plant, typically a combined heat and power plant. And that allows them to recover roughly 80% of the energy, uh, about 35% in the electricity, about 50% um, in the, the heat. And they can use that back on site to offset their uh, fossil fuel uh, consumption. So if they're burning natural gas in a boiler on site, they can supplement in the biogas and offset their natural gas consumption. And this actually turns out to be at the least carbon uh, neutral. And we can actually get into the realms of carbon negative with biogas as well. So to get into like the realms of carbon negative, would everybody's poop have to be turned into energy? I mean, that would be great <laughs> for reasons more than just uh, energy collection or recovery. So what happens when, when we've already collected all the gas that we can get off of a digester, there's material that's left over. And, and this all together is digestate. And lovely term, yeah. <laughs> so the digestate can be put through separating technologies like centrifuges, for example, or, or belt presses, basically. Um, these will separate the water from the solids. And then both, actually, both the water and the solids still contain a lot of elements that are really useful for agriculture, uh, particularly uh, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. And this gets really important because we don't have uh, a whole lot of phosphorus remaining in the ground. Uh, some, some people are predicting or determining uh, peak phosphorus. So this is the peak phosphorus is the point where it's no longer economical for us to recover uh, phosphorus from the ground. It's going to become more and more difficult to be recovering phosphate rock and that's going to drive up the prices and it's just not going to be economical anymore. And phosphorus is fundamental. It, it's part of DNA. And if we can't build DNA, we can't grow our plants. And if we can't grow our plants, we can't eat. And this will exacerbate hunger situations that we already have around the world. Why? why um, I'm curious as to why there is a phosphorus shortage. Like what's, um, what's the source? The source is uh, it, it's mined at the moment, so it's in rocks. Yeah, and that is mined. I, I did come up with some information yesterday, and I was like, "Nah, that won't come up." <laughs> Sorry, um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I did do some numbers on it, and if we were to recover uh, just from food waste, so I've done some numbers around food waste that I thought might be interesting, and. If we were able to put all of the food waste that's generated globally 
into an anaerobic digestion process, we could recover around 10 megatons of nitrogen, around 3.8 megatons of phosphate and 5 megatons of, of potassium as, as potash. And, you know, this is, this is not a lot compared to our consumption. We are just talking about food waste. We're not considering agricultural crop residues. We're not talking about municipal uh, or, or wastewater treatment plant solids. Um, and that amount is very close. That 3.8 uh, megatons is very close to what the U.S. consumes per year, which is four to four and a half megatons of phosphate rock. Okay, so that's not nothing. It's, it's yeah. not nothing. It's enough to support, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of people. And they're probably exporting a fair bit of um, uh, food that they're producing as well. I'm also just now realizing that, because um, you, you had mentioned that potash is uh, potassium, and there's like a major source of potash in Canada, and I had never connected the two. <laughs> <laughs> I'm learning a lot already. (laughs) (laughs) I I just can't help but make the connection that, you know, marijuana is legal in in Canada. And then we're talking about potash. And I'm like, are we talking about the same things? (laughs) (laughs) Different potashes. (laughs) (laughs) So, Pete, then it sounds like one, because I was going to ask you what the difference is between biogas and other renewable energy sources. And it sounds like one of the big ones is that you can harvest useful elements from the process of biogas is that right well yeah yeah that is very much uh, one of the points and i guess the other thing is that there's there's really two treatment methods for dealing with waste that is already there organic waste in particular you know solar is fantastic but it doesn't deal with a waste and and wind again is fantastic but doesn't deal with a waste and so Biogas uh, does deal with the waste and we get the energy and uh, the nutrient recovery out of it. So it, it's, it kind of fits its own little niche market, I guess, there. Does that, <laughs> does that uh, distinguish biogas from other renewable techs? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it's a lot different. I really didn't understand. Like you, we've we um we travel together a little bit. That's how we know each other. And you did tell me a lot about your PhD in biogas, but I wasn't listening. So <laughs> it's nice. I don't blame you. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, it is really interesting. It's just like hard to keep everything in your head, and it's really cool to hear you like explain everything really thoroughly and I you know now I can like ask questions that I think are stupid and it's it's okay I have a stupid question can I ask one? yes please is um is biogas and biofuels are those different things or are they the same I don't know (laughs) I mean it's kind of like chihuahuas and dogs you know chihuahuas are dogs but not all dogs are chihuahua and and biogas is a biofuel but not all biofuels are biogas we have uh, biodiesel for example that can be generated from uh, algae or, okay, or other, okay. um, not necessarily just algae, but other plants, for example. And uh, this is basically taking the oils or the fats in those materials, uh, be they algae or, or plant seeds and that kind of thing. And uh, it goes through a process called transesterification uh, to produce what are called fatty acid methyl esters. And these are your, <laughs> your biodiesel. big words. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, that was my honest. We can talk about that as well. 
Okay, so biogases um, are sort of like a subcategory of biofuels then. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> Clears things up for me. <laughs> so you were saying that there's like, you, you work on, you work on smaller digesters, but there are large scale ones as well. Were you saying that there was two different sizes? Maybe I also wasn't listening again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no worries. Um, in the lab, we're, we're kind of restricted with size, but we also use that smaller size to produce a lot more replicates because what we do is science and what they're doing in industry is introducing pilot scales or we're involved in pilot scales, but moving up to, to full industrial scale. And you can't afford just to have multiple million dollar digesters uh, in the backyard of your business uh, just to run an experiment. So what we do is we produce digesters in the lab that mimic that on-site uh, operation. And so that allows us to uh, reproduce the conditions that they're working in and optimize them from there. So uh, we were working with a business uh, nearby where they have uh, an anaerobic lagoon. So basically it's a big hole in the ground with a cover over it. It's These lagoons are typically not heated. They're not stirred. Uh, they're just left to their own devices basically. And so we could bring that information back here, the, the water temperatures, the, the air temperature and all that kind of information. And we can uh, reproduce that and then say, okay, if we introduce some, some stirring, which they can do through uh, recirculation of the, the liquid in there, or they can introduce an impeller, that kind of thing, um, we could boost biogas production by this much. And then uh, if we were to introduce a, a thermostat in some heat exchange, we could get this up to 37 degrees, maybe up to 40 degrees and boost the biogas production. And, and for example, the, the study that we did found that if we introduce those features, we could get 80% more biogas out. That's really interesting. So, so do you run experiments for a lot of different companies? Is that kind of what you're working on? We do. A lot of those are sort of laboratory laboratory analyses. Uh, so we've done work in a general agricultural area, and we have we have papers around that. So we deal with Australia wide, for example, um, determining the energy demand in in industries, and then determining how much biogas can be used in those industries or even between industries. And I'll mention that in a moment. But more specifically, we've worked with red meat processing, so abattoirs, or, or I think you call them slaughterhouses in, in Canada, and feedlots, where they um, take animals in and, and grow them up to a larger size very quickly, and they move on to the abattoir. Um, we've worked with food waste, so human uh, food waste. We've done work with crop residues, particularly sugarcane and silage. I've sort of worked a little into composting and a process called gasification. And we've done laboratory analyses for uh, pork, poultry, even plastics, which not surprisingly didn't get any biogas out, but they wanted to know anyway. <laughs> Always good to check, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, if we can help to break down plastic, uh, that's fantastic because as you guys are well aware, plastic is a, a terrible issue. And so where I was talking about, you know, agricultural uh, field 
in general. Um, we've actually got a paper that's uh, in the processes at the moment. Uh, it's been out to review and it's it's gone through all that. And um, there's a, I guess, a, a category of anaerobic digestion called co-digestion, where if one material that we want to digest isn't particularly well suited, we can throw in another material that is well suited and that can help to degrade uh, one or even both of those uh, materials. And where we have a situation such as an abattoir and a feedlot next to each other, manure carries a lot of nutrients um, that can go into that process and the material that's coming out of the abattoirs, typically high nitrogen, protonaceous kind of materials and uh, often quite dilute as well. So by mixing the manure with the material from the abattoir at the abattoir, we can boost the methane production and the stability of the digesters. And as the, the feedlot isn't a, isn't a large producer, uh, sorry, isn't a large um, user of energy, but the slaughterhouse is. And so we can get that potential energy to the slaughterhouse and uh, use that material to produce a lot of energy to offset the energy demands of the abattoir. So would you say then that the the biggest demand right now for these digesters is uh, on like cattle farms or or places with slaughterhouses? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, There's been a lot in terms of farm scale digesters overseas. I think the UK has done a fair bit in that. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that that here, and that's sort of where my my context is rooted, is in Australia. So I would say that the the place where biogas really should be booming is in municipalities and treating food waste um, there. There is a lot of interest from abattoirs and and rendering plants, and I think that was sort of prompted when we had this discussion of a carbon tax. When you you talk to people in the industry, they they do relate back to the carbon tax. And as you may know, that kind of got canned when our uh, lovely conservative government came in. <laughs> you know, the world was like, oh, Australia, doing good things, doing good things. And then the next government comes in, it's like, oh, Australia. That's fine. Your guys' <laughs> government changes every six months anyways, right? So. Right. <laughs> also, we're probably just a couple of years away from the same thing happening. So. Oh, boy. <laughs> good luck no, fair enough. I, I mean, you did talk a lot about the, the food waste and how, how much value we can get from using the digesters there. So I guess that was just me forgetting that you had just talked about that. <laughs> no, no worries. No worries. I'm curious, like, could somebody apply this kind of technology? Like, is it feasible at a household level? Like, if I wanted to turn my poop into fuel, could I do that? Or is that just, like, vastly infeasible <laughs> yeah no I'm, I'm really glad you asked that question uh, I, have a, I have a paper <laughs> and so uh, biogas in the suburbs so basically the the premise of that story is that uh, there was a guy down in Melbourne yes Melbourne and uh, he got on to us and said hey guys I've been doing my own backyard experiment with this uh, home digester, and I'd like to write a paper about it. And so I, I basically talked my boss into it, and uh, you can find that 
online, um, just search my name and and say biogas in the suburbs, and you'll be able to get all the all the information. Um, but I I did quite a good analysis. I, if I do say so myself, <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, I was quite proud of this way. So uh, I, I basically took uh, the amount of biogas we can get from food waste. Right? I, and yes, you can use manure, but manures uh, it's already been through a digestion system. What's left over is is um, not super in terms of biogas mm-hmm. yield, but you can put it in there for sure. So I took the amount of food waste that's that's standard for an Australian to produce in a year, which I found out is a lot more than what Canadians produce. So well done. And <laughs> shame on us. <laughs> I took that and determined how much gas could be produced and then using different sized stoves, how long could you cook for on that? And going from memory, because I don't have the paper up in front of me, I think you needed three to four people in the household to actually generate enough waste to get like, uh, to completely, I think it was to completely offset your your cooking energy. Basically, the conclusion um, that we came to was that, look, yeah, home biogas digesters, uh, they can be used and they can be very useful in if you're off grid. Um, but if you are in town, the best solution would be a centralised digestion plant where uh, there's someone monitoring it all the time they're able to optimise the processes so you're, you're making best use of it, that can be distributed uh, into a grid and controlled. Uh, what we don't want is some, a lot of people with backyard digesters that go away for a while and the system will leak and then that methane is, is 28 times more potent as a greenhouse gas and carbon dioxide. So it doesn't take a whole lot of leakage to be really quite bad for the environment. Okay, so the best thing to do is like for Ottawa to have a system and then I just give them my compost. <laughs> well, yeah, um, in a sense, yeah. And it's funny that you mentioned uh, compost. I mean, you can digest compost, but there's a, a thing called the uh, food waste hierarchy. Oh, fortunately, I printed this one out. I got it in front of me. So, I mean, that all starts with, uh, I'll, I'll go through it from most preferable to least preferable. And it all starts with prevention. So uh, if you can make use of it, make use of it, uh, and perhaps we shouldn't be, I guess, producing more than we need. After that, it's redistribution to people. And there are places, I think it's uh, one of them is Food Bank. There's uh, apps like uh, Too Good to Throw or Too Good to Go. It depends on the country. I think both of them exist. Mm -hmm. And this is where people can go and go, hey, I've got some food that's going to be uh, going off soon. I'm not going to get a chance to use it. Come and take it. And then after that, it should go to animals because then it's maintaining its value as food, what it was grown for. And there's a, a lot that goes into, as you guys would know, you know, a lot of water, energy and time that go into growing food. And we don't just yeah. want to waste that. After that, when it's no longer useful as a food product, we want to get that into recycling. And the best way that we can do that is anaerobic digestion. And then the very next option after that is composting. And while composting uh, is great for the recovery of the, the nutrients, with anaerobic digestion, we get the nutrients and the energy. So, so composting is actually um, a net user of energy 
whereas anaerobic digestion is a net producer of energy. This is so frustrating to listen to because it's like (laughs) we have the solutions to make sure that there is no food ever wasted. And yet it's like the number one is awful. We're so wasteful when there's like solutions for all of this. It's so true. And I, I, I hate wasting food. It is a pet hate of mine. And I will let something sit in the fridge knowing it's bad, (laughs) waiting until something's growing on it so I can go, yep, there it is. Okay, I can throw it out. (laughs) And even then, I don't feel comfortable with throwing it out. It represents a waste of money and a waste of uh, food and and all the value that goes into that. So you were saying that some countries are using anaerobic digestion already. I mean, it's a well. I mean, it's an old technology. We should all be using it. But you were saying, like, India is particularly good at it. Did I catch that earlier? India has a lot of small scale digesters. Um, I wouldn't say that they're particularly good at it, but unfortunately, there's a lot of poor people in India, which we've both seen, you know, firsthand. And there is enormous potential to do more in India with uh, anaerobic digestion. It's something that I. Uh, it, it, this sort of dovetails into uh, one of my pet projects at the moment. But uh, a lot of their digesters are very simple. They are um, what's called a floating dome digester. And basically this is a tank um, with a smaller tank flips up, flipped upside down. If you imagine it, a, a tank cut in half, right, and then take slightly smaller tank and cut it in half again. And then the, the, the roof of the smaller one fits inside the bigger one. And then you fill the digester with 50% cow manure, 50% water, and then you just let it sit. And as biogas is produced, pressure inside builds up and lifts that lid, right? And these are made of like steel. And um, that also adds a lot of pressure to the system because it's a lot of weight being made of steel and so you've got pressurized gas and so you just turn a tap and you've got pressurized gas that comes through to your stove so very simple a lot of people don't understand the complexities of a system how to tell if a system is overloaded or if the system is failing if it if it requires trace elements or because i mean trace elements is basically like if you send sailors out to sea and uh, several hundred years ago and they're getting scurvy after a couple of months and this is a, a lack of you know your vitamin c it's the same thing with digesters they're living things and they need these these things like your vitamin c and sailors to keep on going to keep on reproducing <laughs> i like that analogy <laughs> <laughs> thank you <laughs> me too <laughs> So, yeah, they, they have a lot, but I wouldn't say, say that they do it well. The people that I would say do do it well are the Germans and the English. Germany has the most digesters by far in Europe and really in many senses lead the way in terms of anaerobic digestion and, and uh, in terms of controlled anaerobic digestion. The UK are doing heaps in food waste digestion. And, you know, I mentioned earlier that, you know, we're kind of on the cutting edge in terms of trace elements. It wasn't until just recently that they realized that 
their digesters were beginning to fail after a long time of operation because they were running out of trace elements. So they supplemented with trace elements and like, bam, it's, yeah, I'm back, baby, you know. like <laughs> the, other, the other country that's doing a lot is, is China in terms of home digesters. They have far more than India. They have about 40 million different type of digester, but 40 million, whew. That's a lot, yeah. <laughs> I'm curious, um, like, what, what is it that's making those three countries sort of the, the leaders and uh, what's stopping places like Canada from adopting this kind of technology? It's a good question. And I did start to look into Canada and I was like, you know what, I'll be here for like weeks just getting down. <laughs> sure. Because unfortunately, a lot of it comes down to like policy, so government support. Um, I think a lot of places in China and India are um, on board with this because it's basically free energy. The, the digesters that they're building are not complicated. They're, they're cheap, they're easy, but they're also nasty. I know in Germany they had um, their renewable energy target and there were subsidies. Um, I believe in the feed-in tariffs they were given a lot of, of per, I think they were for electricity, so per megawatt hour or per kilowatt hour that they were contributing back to the grid, they were given quite a bit of money for that, so it was affordable. Um, they have since scrapped a lot of that and the number, so they, their new digesters per year was uh, on the incline, and then um, they scrapped that. And a lot of a lot of progress in that area has been scrapped, unfortunately. Okay, so yeah, it sounds like it's mostly political will and um, policies that create incentives. Yes, yes, absolutely. We haven't had a lot of movement here in terms of anaerobic digestion because, well. They didn't even know that it existed, basically. You know, our politicians aren't experts. Um, I think that was quite evident when a man was made minister for women. (laughs) (laughs) Right? (laughs) And so when it comes to accepting what the scientists are saying, it's like, well, I could do the right thing, which is also good for the population, but the coal company is giving me money, so I'm going to go with the money. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it sounds like you could um, apply basically all of that to the Canadian context. It seems pretty mm-hmm. similar. <laughs> Just sub out coal for oil. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the last time we talked, Pete, you made homemade cider. Uh, how did that go? <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, that was my icebreaker, but I completely forgot to ask. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it, it's great. I've inoculated like a couple more bottles since then. And uh, it's amazing. Like it carbonates itself and uh, the flavors were bang on. Better than what I get out of a bottle, you know, like Record League. Do you guys get Record League over in Canada? Oh, yeah. I don't think I've seen it in Canadian shelves, but I've definitely seen it in the UK. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah That's where I've seen it. Disgustingly sweet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you can let this digestion go, the fermentation go as long as you want uh, to get the desired level of sweetness. So, yeah, it's, it's amazing. So does it get sweeter the longer you ferment it? I, I have no idea how any of this works. <laughs> no, because the, the, uh, the yeast consumes the sugars. And produces the alcohol, and uh, so it gets drier the longer you leave it. Oh, interesting! Delicious, and it's so easy. <laughs> like if you guys wanted to try it, take a bottle of juice, 
go down to your brew shop, get some cider yeast, and then um, just on like the last maybe centimeter of a teaspoon, that the handle of a teaspoon, right, the tiny little bit, uh, just get some yeast with that and put that in. Uh, leave it for maybe, oh, well, Canada, okay. Depends on the temperature. Uh, <laughs> in Australia, it takes uh, five five days-ish, depending on the temperature. Um, we really want it around 37 for optimal. You guys at negative 40, um, that, that might take a while. <laughs> I've cider in a decade maybe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but room temperature, yeah, maybe eight days or something like that. Uh, just, just don't tighten the lid, leave it on, on the bench, so cap uh, turned back and so the gas can get out and you'll have cider in a couple of days. Super easy. And a lot cheaper. Recipes from an expert. There you go. I'm definitely going to try that. <laughs> Before I ask my last question, did either of you have anything else you wanted to add? Oh, I was going to say that uh, this, uh, you know, I could have spoken about uh, United Nations Sustainability, uh, Devel- oh, so, sorry, Sustainable Development Goals and where biogas fits in. There's a nice bit on gender equality um, that I thought would be particularly interesting. But we can talk about that another time if you want. <laughs> oh, no, no. Yeah, you can definitely tell us about that. We love gender equality. <laughs> good, good. Um, one of the sustainable development goals for uh, the United Nations is uh, gender equality. And biogas fits in with one of those um, because in developing nations, and this this study was around Cambodia. So this is, this is a study from SNV, Netherlands uh, Development Organization sorry, organization, and um, they've introduced biogas um, to houses in Cambodia. And uh, this really impacts, like, the kitchen and the cooking environment as well as um, fuel collection, which is largely done by the women. And so some of the stats that I just wanted to throw out there was uh, 96% of households report spending less time next to the stove per average meal cooked. Um, and these guys are spending hours at the stove, right? So we might spend half an hour or an hour. They're, they're spending like three and four hours a day. They do tend to be cooking more often. Um, so the average time spent there doesn't vary a lot, but it is half an hour at the moment. So instead of two, two times a day, they're cooking four times a day. And um, I think they, they said that that was because the biogas stove was just so easy to light, whereas when you're uh, cooking on wood and manure, you, it takes a while to sort of get that going, get the heat up, and, and you have to sit there and you have to watch the stove all the time to keep adding fuel, um, whereas the biogas system is so much easier. 83% reported less time involved in cleaning pots because you don't have all that soot and, and char on the bottom. 88% of households reported spending um, less time procuring fuel and required only, uh, well, it says over 50% less fuel, uh, as in mass, required to perform the same task if biogas was used. So not, as, not only is it saving them time, but it's less labour. 63% reduction in cooking burns. Oh, I was just curious, um, is, that, is it also better for like indoor air pollution? Um- like I know, I know that that's a huge issue in um, in countries that are less wealthy. That like indoor cook stoves, because they're using like coal or whatever, um, creates health problems. Because you know, absolutely. That's uh, so. My next 
point then is uh, 50% reported improved health, and that is because there's an 80% reduction in kitchen air pollution and personal exposure. So they're different numbers, but personal exposure also reduced significantly. So we're seeing a lot of benefits to the people that are performing basically the the kitchen-related tasks, which in the vast majority of households over there, it is the women. I think this is uh, absolutely fantastic because, of course, it ties in with biogas and it means it's something that we can help with, uh, which I, I, I said earlier that it sort of dovetailed into a pet project and I'm really interested in, in getting some work going with uh, Southeast Asia and developing nations where we can start contributing in, in this as well. But I guess that's uh, that's going to be a topic for another day that I could talk about <laughs> a lot. Yeah, it sounds like the technology has a lot of like potential that we're not harnessing right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is what uh, my boss and I are working towards to try and get this, uh, at least locally in, in Australia, into roadmaps. So moving forward, having the government aware and willing to fund this kind of work and at the moment, we're really set on composting, and I've I think I've outlined that this is better than composting. So, you know, hopefully in the next few years, uh, we'll we'll see something pop up here. Okay, cool. So my last question then is, Pete, in a perfect world, what scale is this technology at? Like in your dream world, <laughs> does every city have a giant digester? Does every household have one? What What's your dream for this technology? My dream for this technology? <laughs> Definitely at the, uh, the city level, not at the household level. Um, as mentioned, it's, it, it's more work basically at the household level. I think uh, personally that each city should have one at least um, or there would be a number of um, digesters for redundancy and cleaning and that kind of thing, but uh, everywhere will have a plant and that'll be centrally operated. The, um, say, curbside collection will collect the waste. It'll take it to the facility and that should be operated by the council um, not for profit. Um, because it will generate money um, and I think that that should be reinvested and I think that people should get uh, basically cuts on their their rates and that digestate that is produced uh, should be given back to the community, either to the farmers but also available to the, uh, the people as well. I think probably the farmers should get the... Uh, first go at it because, you know, they're producing the majority uh, of the food. And if we can, as I mentioned, offset that phosphorus rock consumption, then that's that's really going to be a, to the benefit of uh, humanity. But this can also tie in with anything that's producing organic material, basically. So anywhere that, uh, say, Coca-Cola, for example, um, there's a wastewater treatment plant uh, reasonably nearby and they get waste material from coca-cola and that's all sugars produces a lot of biogas breaks it down and that basically um, saves the waterways from receiving that waste uh, it prevents things like algal blooms and uh, fish kills and that kind of thing um, so uh, there's a, a priority really we've got to get this material out of landfill we can't have landfills anymore they're horrible 
So how do we get to the point where every city has a digester? That's a good question. I'm not sure I have the answers, but a lot of it's going to come down to education because at the moment, if we, I'm actually on a project at the moment, which uh, works with a council and we're looking at changing, excuse me, their, their collection system to enable the collection of food waste. And the problem with this will be the community's ability to accept this change and incorporate this change. And it all comes back to them in the end. It's got to be source separator or or it's just not going to work. If we can educate people that this is the best option and um, they start to push for it, uh, then we should see some changes. In the end, I, I mean, people have the power, essentially. We elect the people that are in charge, or or Murdoch does, but hey, that's a story for another day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but we do have um, some power there, and we can get these things happening if we're voting for the right people. Sounds like an uphill battle considering I didn't know what anaerobic digestion was, even though I'd spent two months with you. Yeah, yep, and that's, <laughs> that's part of the problem. So, yeah, that, as I say, my boss has been... Um, uh, successful in at least getting anaerobic digestion um, into some roadmaps. So uh, the National Energy Roadmap, I think it was, and the Bioenergy Roadmap. Uh, and this is the first time that anaerobic digestion has like appeared in anything coming out of government. So <laughs> it seems like something that'd be really like um, if you can get in the doors, would be really easy to pitch to a municipality because it's not like it's going to be a net cost to them. Oh, yeah, yeah. The risk, uh, the, the problem is that uh, our councils are risk averse. So they want to outsource everything. And I say, look, as soon as you outsource this, um, they're going to be trying to make a profit. I mean, I, I don't blame them. It's a business. And as soon as that happens, it drives up prices. For example, we can generate electricity at $60 per megawatt hour. And that's that's purely down to all the costs that go in, you know, labor and uh, trucking and all that kind of thing. Now they've got, well, this council that I'm working with, they have a landfill gas project and they get that they outsource this and they're getting energy at $90 per megawatt, basically sold back from this company. So immediately we're a third more expensive just by outsourcing it just because they want to uh, get rid of that risk to them. Cool. Well, on that note. uh... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Yeah, it always it always comes down to, you know, phone your MP. (laughs) (laughs) It really does. Tell them you care about the planet. Send them to this podcast for an explanation of what biogas is if you have trouble (laughs) describing it yourself, which I did. Pete, is there anywhere you want people to find out more about this stuff or any anything you want people to do or follow you at? Um, well, I don't really do any social media, but I really should get on board with that. Um, but if there's any listeners that sort of want to uh, contact me or, or find out more about what the Centre is doing, they can always Google the Centre for Agricultural Engineering. You can see the kind of projects we're involved in. We do more than just bioenergy. We do uh, machine vision work. We do 
at putting water on irrigation. That's the one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, we have other other things here as well. There's some biosecurity projects and whatnot. What's biosecurity? I'm curious about that. <laughs> uh, well, fortunately, because we're a little floating island off in the middle of nowhere, there's not a lot of uh, insects and whatnot getting into the country. But when shipping comes in at the ports, we can have like bees and other insects come in on that equipment. And so there was one project we had which involved uh, bee boxes at ports and these had smarts in them uh cameras and and counting things and basically when it detected a foreign bee it would alert the people that needed to be alerted and they could deal with that problem so that we didn't get another invasive species coming in and out and uh competing with our native fauna is your department the one that took away Johnny Depp's dog? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> we're, we're nice people here. <laughs> but, yeah, they can always Google if they, if they want to uh, read about bioenergy or, or the anaerobic digestion work that we're involved in, they can always Google my name and anaerobic digestion should get most of my papers. They typically have my boss on there and, and my other colleagues as well. If they're interested in the, the broader picture, they can always um, look up the International Energy Agency, and there's a lot of good work uh, going on uh, in and around Europe, and and now we're on board. Hopefully, we can get everyone on board. Yeah, fantastic, cool. Well, thanks for joining us today, Pete. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much. I really enjoyable. Love talking with you guys. Yeah, definitely. We, I don't know. I know a lot of people in Australia, so it's always nice to get some representation here. <laughs> oh, oh, and uh, you're, you're absolutely right. Australia is in denial about winter. It, it's very real. Oh, I call back. And it gets cold. <laughs> yes, validation. Thank you. If listeners want to go back and listen to our winter gear episode, you can, you can hear me get a little bit like heated about how cold australia gets i felt like i'd been tricked <laughs> yeah i feel like the whole first uh five minutes of that episode was just about australia and not winter <laughs> 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 worked out <laughs> it can be cold and people are out in like a, a singlet and thongs and you're like mate what the hell is wrong with you <laughs> so, yeah, denial is real the denial is real <laughs> for our canadian listeners thongs are sandals which is a thing that very much confused me for the first like two months i was in australia <laughs> <laughs> yeah you don't want to get those confused <laughs> no <laughs> fantastic okay well listeners can catch us uh we're on twitter mostly although i like instagram too that's uh pull at pullback podcast and thanks again to pete for joining us We'll catch you guys on the next episode. I was working there for a couple of years and, and all the time Bernadette would say to me, there's uh, Bernadette's my boss. Um, she would say to me, there's a PhD in this, there's a PhD in that. And I was like, yeah, no, nah, no, nah, nah, you know. Kristen, you want to tell us about PhDs? <laughs> nope. <laughs> 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 yeah, I don't either. <laughs>